A Dog's Life is brought to you by Earth Animal No Hide Wholesome Chews. Earth Animal No Hide Wholesome Chews are a healthy, heavenly, hand-rolled alternative to rawhide made from grass-fed beef, humanely raised chicken, and wild-caught Atlantic salmon. They're 100% free of chemicals, additives, bleach, and formaldehyde. It's the sustainable way to keep your dog healthy, happy, and filled with goodness and love. Mr. Binks and Prudence have never had a rawhide because in my book, they're not healthy. So imagine their excitement to enjoy a no-hide chew. Apart from helping to keep their teeth clean, chewing is an instinctual behavior that helps calm dogs by releasing happy hormones. Both Mr. Binks and Prudence relish the natural chewing experience from start to finish, and it gives me peace of mind that I'm giving them a treat that they were born to enjoy. In fact, no high chews are rated as excellent for digestibility, 80% compared to just 18% for rawhide. You can find Earth Animal No Hide Wholesome Chews at a pet shop near you or online at earthanimal.com forward slash UK. I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Well, Mr. Binks, here we are back south of the river for part two of our special on Battersea Dogs and Cats Home who are celebrating their 160th anniversary this month. Yes, Mr. Binks, last week we did learn how Battersea continues to treat and train dogs for rehoming. But this week, we're going to speak to Spencer Wisdom. He's the head of Legacies and History, and we'll be finding out how this iconic institution sprung from the compassion of a formidable woman called Mary Tealby. Spencer Wisdom, thank you so much for joining A Dog's Life to talk about 160 years of Battersea. You know, I'm fascinated with history. I love it. And for me, just to chat a bit more about, you know, how dogs have been part of our lives for so long. But how different do you think it was for dogs uh, 160 years ago in London. Oh, absolutely fundamentally different. I think you, you've got to remember that dogs at that time had absolutely no rights at all uh, and weren't viewed as much better than the sort of refuse we see on the streets now. Perhaps think of them as sort of discarded fast food wrappers. Um, that's how society perceived them. It's something you stepped over, you hoped was swept away, uh, and you didn't give much thought to. Uh, and that was very much, I think, how Mary. Um, what she was coming across and fighting against when she picked up that first dog from the gutter on the way to have tea with her her friend Sarah Major back in 1860. She stepped over that little dog and picked it up and did something unusual for the time and cared for it. And and that was the beginning uh, of the Battersea story. And Mary, explain Mary a little bit more. Mary was fascinating. So you imagine Mary in 1860. She was 59. She was separated from her husband, no longer living together. He had been a prosperous timber merchant up in uh, Hull, uh, concentrating on importing timber from Russia, 
had a, had a lot of money up there in a very established business. For whatever reason, they parted. Now, at that time, you know, it wasn't something that happened. You couldn't get a divorce uh, without an act of parliament in 1860. It was a big deal. And to be a separated woman from your husband was to really risk social isolation. You, you were a non-person. You lost your rights. You lost your position in society. So Mary came back to London to live with her mum and dad. But she didn't do what was expected of her. She should have been seen and not heard by that point. She should have withdrawn from polite society um, because she'd lost her position. But she did absolutely the opposite. She set about basically radicalising polite society in the interests of the dogs and cats that we were talking about there, who had no rights, who had uh, no... Uh, but no one to speak for them, and it all began with that little dog who she didn't pass by uh, back in 1860 when she w was going for, as I say, going for tea. And on the way there, she came across this little dog that was completely emaciated uh, uh, and w was, uh, was dying. And she picked it up and carried it to her friend's house. I imagine her friend was rather shocked that she turned up not with her. Well, <laughs> maybe she was a dog lover as well. Well, I suspect you know, she let's was. Hope so. And I, I'm sure she was, but I think it would still have been quite an unusual thing to, to have done. Well, of but, course. I mean, it'd be unusual today to a degree as well. Would. You know, I mean, luckily today we have Battersea here. So, you know, somebody could bring the dog to um, a, a rescue like Battersea. But Mary, what an interesting character. What happened to that dog? Well, they, had, they, they loved dogs, but they had no idea how to care for it. So what they did uh, was go down to Sarah's kitchen and sit with the little dog, get it warm. And obviously they had no veterinary training uh, at all and no access to, to vets. So they concluded the best thing to do was to give it a spoonful of warm port uh, on the hour. And they sat up, respectively, between them for the next day, doing exactly that uh, and caring for it, keeping it warm and giving it the, the warm port. And I'm very sorry to say that little dog didn't make it. Uh, but Mary, it's, it, its life, although it didn't make it, its life transformed so many other dogs' lives for the next 160 years because Mary made a promise to say that she would never pass by another dog like that and started taking dogs just like that into her house. And, and where was that, the house? At that time, that's in Hollingbury in North London. Right, right. So, gosh, so Battersea Cats and Dogs Home began north of the river. Absolutely, yeah, in a, in a stable yard um, behind Mary's house, uh, which quickly uh, filled up, as you can imagine. She, she soon established her, her reputation as the lady to take uh, unwanted uh, uh, dogs to, and she filled up her, her stable yard behind her house very quickly. I'm sure she did. And when did Mary move south of the river? And well, how long have you been here at this amazing site? Well, very sadly, Mary never moved south of the river. So having founded the home in, in 1860, uh, Mary passed away in 1865. Oh. So she, but she knew um, she, she was there long enough to, to develop a really strong committee network, or often of ladies just like herself, who were really motivated, who were great networkers, great fundraisers, and they raised enough money to keep the home going at that stage, to get us established, to, to enable um, those, those dogs to be careful in the stable yard, but she never actually saw us move to Battersea. So the Battersea move happened in 1870. Um, so a, a few years after uh, Mary had, had sadly gone, but essentially it was funded by the committee that she'd set up. 
Uh, and the move happened because the premises that we were using in Holloway were far too small. They were in a residential street, so you can imagine the noise and the smell and the potential upset with the neighbours and indeed with the landlord. Um, who, who was putting on a bit of pressure. So the committee um, resolved to find a permanent site uh, and they looked around across London and at that time Battersea was very much uh, on the outer, outer fringes. There wasn't a lot here. Um, there were a bit of rail, railways had started to come in and the, the network was here but this was essentially wasteland. So they thought this was an excellent place to, to build a, a home for the dogs and where we weren't going to offend anyone, where no one was going to complain about the noise or the smell. And so we, we moved to Battersea and have been here ever since. Oh, it's a, an amazing site. So literally you've been here for um, 150 years-ish, 155 Yes, yes years. absolutely. Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. Through, through two world wars and before well, the power station. And <laughs> Yes, yeah. And London, of course, has got so much bigger. I mean, I guess back in the day it was really centred around the West End, really, and anywhere else was quite a trek. Yes, absolutely. Without cars and without bicycles even, I think, uh, at that you, point. Uh, uh, just sort of coming in, I think. I think it, uh, sort of to sort of pinpoint in my head I think um, Big Ben had just been built and, and had rung for the first time in about 1860. It's so, isn't it? Yeah. I, I love all this. A dog's life is supported by Relaxo Pet. It's simply animal relaxing. Being left alone, travelling, fireworks, thunder, trips to the vet or just a change in any environment can unsettle a pet. This tune sounds very relaxing, yet beneath this meditative melody are levels of frequencies that are only audible to your dog. When I tried out Relaxo Pet with my excitable miniature bull terrier Prudence, I simply couldn't believe how quickly she settled and actually seemed more deeply relaxed. Her behavior in general has actually dropped several gears <laughs> and she is more confident and calm in herself. So I use it every day. Developed in Germany, Relaxo Pet emanates cleverly configured frequencies that tune into your dog's subconscious to retrain his thought processes into becoming calm. Tested in collaboration with vets, breeders, pet parents in a huge variety of stressful situations, it boasts a uniquely calibrated speaker system that just plugs in and plays. Along with the Relaxo Pet sound system, you can develop a calmer dog with other Relaxo Pet products like the Super Sense Safe Multipurpose Play Ring and the Soothing Cool Bandana. Why not check out their full product range and even order yours today from PetTradeInnovations.com. That's PetTradeInnovations.com. You mentioned the World Wars, of course, mm. as being a massively landmark, of course, in everyone's history. But what role did Battersea play in the, in the wars? An important role right from the beginning. Um, so war was declared in 1914. The, the, the able-bodied male members of staff went, including our vet, uh, Royal Army Veterinary Corps, went to the trenches. So we, we, we faced an immediate uh, manpower issue. Uh, and equally not only uh, mobilizing our, our staff but the dogs were mobilized for the war effort uh, and there was a very interesting man um, called Colonel Richardson right. um, who um, early on in the war said right we, we've got to do our part he was a retired army officer but he wanted to play his role and decided that he was going to set up a war dog school he lived down in Shrewby Ness uh, in Kent uh, and had bred Airedale Terriers as it happens before before the war and he knew what a good breed 
they were and so he had trained those and made his dogs available to the war office um, and said look these would be very good they're very versatile animals very tenacious and intelligent and they'd be excellent messengers uh, and um, so in the yeah. first world war dogs were used to you know because obviously we didn't have mobile phones then yep. or any broadcasting equipment I wouldn't have thought at that time no, absolutely. or it was very very basic so dogs were used weren't they to go from trench to trench um, around their collars, they had little um, envelope things well, that would have handwritten notes. The success of the dog getting from A to B could potentially save lives. Absolutely. I think it was so... I mean, the great horror, I think, was being cut off and not knowing where you were, and more importantly, other people not knowing where you were. So in terms of where they were, um, you know, essentially uh, aiming the guns and deciding where to fire and where, when, you know, where you were moving next and where, where the action was at its most intense. To be able to get a message to your command and report back your position was absolutely essential and your life could depend on it. You know, and how amazing the dogs, you know, held their nerve in those situations. Can you imagine? Perhaps some of the dogs we live with today, I think of my own dogs at home now, you know. I, I don't know, know that, well certainly me, either of them would have the motivation <laughs> to, uh, to do that when guns were going off and, and, and you can imagine the ground would be thick with mud and not exactly easy to run across and, and, and badly lit. How on earth did they know where they were going? I, I think exactly the same and they must have been terrified but you know the, the, the thing with a dog is it, it sort of it, it wants to be with you doesn't it and if you're if the dog is with you somehow or other it is it draws comfort from that and my goodness me you draw comfort from that and I wonder whether as much as being messengers they were really there for morale and keeping people sane um, in those awful conditions. Well yes um, I know for example the RAF in the Second World War kept a lot of bull terriers you know the the English bull terriers because yes. the army really wanted to engage bull terrier to do something constructive like the Airedales but of course you're dealing with quite a stubborn personality and uh, <laughs> yes. dogs that don't necessarily like going in the mud and the rain so they they failed but they were kept by loads of regiments and and the RAF particularly as mascots oh. to hang out with when they weren't up there you know in their fighter planes there's something about the bull terriers that they loved and, and they're known for that Absolutely. there's loads of books on their their mascot uh, capacity, which I love actually. I think it's quite oh, funny. I said, right. You imagine nothing better than having that big nose pushed pushed at <laughs> exactly. you and given a kiss and when you're wonderful back. Wonderful photographs, you know that. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so dogs in war, you know, and it's great to know that Battersea played a role. And there was one Airedale, I think, called Airedale Jack. Yeah. That was a Battersea dog. He was. So Major Richardson set up the school, um, the war, war dog school, and mm. needed recruits. Uh, and he, he came to Battersea and said, have you got suitable dogs? And Jack was one of the dogs that we sent him. Uh, and Jack's story is, um, you know, typical of the sort of dog that went to, went to the front, but he had a particularly important role to play. And, and he was posted with the Sher Sherwood Foresters wow. uh, at 1918 towards the end of um, the war. Uh, and that, that regiment was um, right at the forefront of the fighting, in, in, the, in the thickest part of the fighting, uh, and had got cut off. And it, it was desperately in need of reinforcement, both ammunition and, and men, and had no way of um, getting, communicating that information. As you say, no radio, telegraph lines cut. Uh, the only thing they had was Jack. 
So the, um, the commanding officer attached a message to Jack's collar and sent him back to Battalion HQ to deliver the message saying, send, send reinforcements. Uh, and Jack went off. He, he was hit several times, I'm, I'm sorry to say. It's not a happy story for Jack, I'm afraid. Oh, no. He, 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 went, he got back to Battalion HQ. The message was communicated, but he'd been badly wounded by shrapnel, and, and um, Jack passed. Oh, uh, that's so sad. Gosh. It is sad, but the regiment was saved. The Sherwood Foresters were saved that day because Jack got the message through. Gosh. Yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, all the animals that served, you know, in the First World War, I think, was... Really awful, wasn't oh, it? You I know? know, and I mean the, the pigeons. I the, mean, without the pigeons, the pigeons, we wouldn't have won either of the wars. The it's... mules, the horses. We go every year um, on uh, as near as we can to the eleventh of uh, November to the animals in War Memorial yes. at Hyde Park. Oh, and it's we all, brilliant. It's, it's a lovely memorial. It isn't really it? is, yeah. actually, and it, and it's lovely to wear a purple poppy for the animals, totally, as well as your red one. For... Uh, and we always go with with one of our Battersea dogs to pay tribute to dogs like Jack and all the other dogs. And it, it's a fascinating day because there's normally a couple of big cavalry charges there from the Household yes. Cavalry. Yeah. The Mule Society comes with a mule and there's a racing pigeon. And it, it's, a, it's a lovely service, but a, a really important service. Yes, because we mustn't forget the role animals have played, you know, and it's kind of synonymous with how animals help us through our day-to-day -day lives now, particularly Absolutely. during this uh, pandemic, which has been likened, of course, to the wars, you yeah. know. Um, and it's interesting how um, Battersea, I think, will be adapting, uh, hopefully not too radically, to coping with a lot of these, you know, lockdown puppies coming mm. back into present day that have been taken on perhaps without the thorough thought and commitment needed to uh, bring a dog into your life. I'm sure you're right. And, and you know, that's what we do and we have done throughout the past 160 years, whether it's responding, we respond to whatever crisis is there, whether it's a rabies scare, whether it's the dogs um, being bought in, or dogs and cats being bought in because people were scared of um, the bombing, um, you know, and the, the coming air raids in the, in the Second World War. We, we, we do get these influxes uh, and you know, you can look at it post-war and we get influxes of, you know, German shepherds and Alsatians when they were in fashion, more latterly it was staffies uh, and you know that the, in recent years it, it's been the influx of um, French bulldogs and, and pugs but we, we, we meet whatever challenges um, come up and, and, uh, and do the best for those dogs and cats uh, and as we've always done. Yes, no, it's, it's brilliant. Just going back to the war, you know, the Second mm. World War with the Blitz, a lot of dogs have I got this right? The government suggested that dogs were euthanised, put to sleep um, in the Second World War in London. Yes, I think that's correct. I, essentially, I think they thought it was the kindest thing to do. They, they'd seen what was happening in Spain with Guernica and the, the big raids um, that had happened during the Spanish Civil War and thought this was going to be unleashed on us on, on you know, the day the war um, broke out. So in the same way that the children were essentially evacuated and got out of London, yeah. the advice, the kindest thing to do, it was seen at the time, was for, for responsible pet owners who loved their animals to to have them put to sleep uh, and they came en masse to Battersea to do that and, I, and I, I, I think it probably is one of the most distressing chapters in our history that that's what so many people 
felt they had to do and was the right thing to do. But I guess rationing meant, you know, people perhaps couldn't even feed themselves, let alone their dogs. Yes. So it must have been very difficult. I, um, I think that, that sort of thing is fascinating. I was talking to an elderly neighbour and I said to her, well, you know, she, she was uh, in London during the war and she had, she had her dog and kept it. And I said, what did you feed them? Yeah. You know, how you yes. haven't got enough food for yourself? And she said what they, the, the, they used to do was um, keep keep the bread and, and melt an oxo cube uh, and when they'd ha the dog would have that as it's it's um, the foundation of its meal so bread with um, oxo and then they'd add to it anything that was left all the leftovers so it probably had a very varied diet yes. and, and quite a nutritious one but well gosh that's something I've never heard about the oxo cube and the no, bread no, but but um, lots of dogs have made history from Battersea over the years not least Red the Lurcher oh yes Red yeah Tell us a bit more about Red, because well, I remember seeing Red on telly. <laughs> I know, yes. Well, unfortunately, Red's uh, comes from the time, about 2004, I think it was, where we had CCTV images. So we were actually able to capture Red's antics um, uh, and, and show it. And essentially what, what seems to have happened was Red was um, a, a lovely sort of tan-coloured lurcher, um, and he was in kennels here, having having been bought in and been abandoned, and settled very well into kennels. But his the the um, the RWAs, the the animal welfare assistants here, were quite puzzled when they used to come back in the mornings because it several of the dogs, including Red, would be out, uh, and there would they there would be um, food on the on the floor, <laughs> and, and it appeared they they couldn't understand how this was happening. But what seems to have happened was that Red had worked out how to open with his long snout. He had a sort of greyhoundy uh, muzzle. Yes. Uh, had had worked out how to use that to get out of his kennel at night and go and have a midnight feast. Uh, and he pretty soon realised that having a midnight feast on his own wasn't so much fun as it could be. <laughs> so he, he employed the same tactics to let out some of his mates. Um, uh, so funny. And they. they they were able to cap. They discovered this by what rewinding the CCTV footage. And what was most interesting was the dogs that he passed by. He had his own particular friends, so he would go. He'd sort of miss two or three kennels and go go get the um, Scotty out from the end kennel, and they'd all share in this midnight feast, and then uh, be there in the morning. Absolutely brilliant! But can you imagine what what great publicity for Battersea Red was doing? You know, with oh, that, know. with that because certainly that was definitely covered in the media. Lots it it, it and lots. got lots so of attention. It was, uh, you know good on Red. <laughs> yes, Red, Red did, did well. And I'm he, sure um, he got a home. He did get a home, yeah. and I think he lived a very happy life, yes. That's excellent to hear. Yeah. Uh, what else over this 160-year period, Spencer, stands out to you that you'd like to mention? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very lucky, because I, I deal with all the legacies that Battersea gets, uh, and we've always been lucky throughout our history to receive people to remember us in their wills. And, you know, the first move when, when we were talking about how we got to Battersea, we came here because someone left us the then enormous sum of £1,000. And that, that was a lady who Mary had recruited onto her committee, Mrs. Hambleton. And it was Mrs. Hambleton's le legacy that enabled us to move to Battersea. And that's been uh, a feature throughout our history. We take cats as a result of a legacy. Uh, um, uh, Mr. Uh, Kellett Barlow, um, but essentially came to us and said, 
look, my wife loves cats. Uh, no one's looking after the cats. If I leave you £500, will you start um, looking after cats? And we said yes, and we're taking cats to this day uh, as a result of that legacy. So, and I get to deal with them today. And you, yeah. we have some fascinating, meet so many lovely, uh, interesting people. And I, I'm dealing with a legacy at the moment for, from a lady um, who passed away at the grand old age of 104. Gosh. Uh, she was a wonderful lady. And I got to know her uh, quite well over the, the last 10 years because she had a Battersea uh, cat, as it happens, Tibby. Uh, and her great worry was that um, if, if anything should happen to her, who would look after Tibby? And I was able to talk to her and give her assurance that if anything happened, we would take in Tibby. And we have a scheme called the Forever Love Scheme, which means we can take in uh, uh, any dog or cat if you would like us to. And you can put that in your will and say that the animal is to come to Battersea and we will take it in and find it another loving home. And that's what we were able to talk with her about Tibby. But I, I was talking to her and, and, and it transpired that she um, had had a very long history with Battersea. She'd lived in London all her life and been a headmistress. Uh, and as it happened, had evacuated her school out of London in 1940 in the, in the period we're talking about right, yeah. when all those animals were coming in. But she got her, she first came to Battersea and got her first Battersea animal in 1929. Gosh. Which, which is an astonishingly long time ago. Uh, and she had her last Battersea animal, Tibby, from us, uh, as I say, in the in around about the mid 2000s, she got Tibby, uh, and I'm very pleased to say Tibby and uh, and Miss um, Brass was her name. Miss Brass lived together right to the end. Uh, Tibby passed away the week before uh, Miss Brass, uh, and Miss Brass, as I say, died at 100, 104. So um, they a had a, life. a very a good, good life, life and, a, yeah. and a, a, a life that stretched. Um, the whole century and nearly a century of animals from Battersea. And it's those sort of stories that really make, for me, the 160th anniversary come alive um, be because it's still going on to this day and it'll be another 160 years and we'll be looking back and there'll be many more stories and we'll face all sorts of challenges in the next 160 years just as we have in this one but we'll get through them and there'll still be people who love cats and dogs and want to look after them. Oh let's hope so Spencer, I mean that's uh wonderful to hear i love your enthusiasm and thank you that's so illuminating oh great pleasure to talk to you and really lovely to meet you well that's our show mr binks what did you think yes battersea really does have such a rich history and it was so lovely to hear about miss brass and her cat tibby i hope you all enjoyed it and if you did please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and while you're there, please also give us a five-star review, as it really does help other dog-loving people find a dog's life. Thanks, of course, to Battersea, and you can find out more about them and their work, including how you can help rehome a dog or a cat, by following Battersea at Battersea underscore. Thanks also to my producer, Mike Hansen, at Pod People Productions on at Pod People UK. And for the latest on me, I'm at Anna Webb Dogs. Finally, thanks to our wonderful sponsors at Earth Animal 1979 and at Relaxo Pet and at Pet Trade Innovations. Links to all their websites are in the show notes. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes! You're right, we are back next Sunday. That's because A Dog's Life is now weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Bye for now. Bye.